Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Hello, hello, and welcome back. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. What do we got going on this week, Trey? This week we're going to talk about Pet Shop Boys' debut album, Please. Oh, I love this album. It, it's a it, it's a good album, but it, it, it took the charts by storm there in spring of 86. It was, you know, another one of those albums we've talked about. You couldn't take a step without hearing about it. And it's a landmark and synthesizer use, too. Absolutely. It really, really was. And uh, so I got this album for Christmas of 86. My aunt gave it to me on cassette. Th- this album really kind of changed the way that I-, I looked at music, if that makes any sense. You know, I mean, I was kind of at that point, you know, adolescent, awkward. But I listened to this cassette a lot, and a lot of these songs really kind of spoke to me. So uh, I think it's appropriate that we're going to do an album deep dive. I actually had a new four copy of the cassette. Of course you did. Again, like with that Duran Duran thing, I don't know. No good reason how I got it in Augusta, Georgia. It was just on the shelf. It came a lot easier than I got it. It was the EMI pressing of the cassette. Well, it was released on EMI in the United States and Parlophone in the UK. But it had that, I should have brought a picture of it had it ready to go you, you, you trust me it was from england okay the american tape was on the clear cassette and all that mine was white black box and you could mine was white oh really i see us other uh-huh. people i know had copies they were one of those clear clear cassettes no mine was white mine had a big long fold-out thing all i had was just pictures of the band no lyrics or nothing yep that's uh yeah that's consistent with what I got. So oh, hey, maybe, maybe maybe my maybe my auntie got me an import copy. Maybe I didn't have an import. Well, might have just been an initial pressing thing. Oh, that could be. That could be. Do you know anything about the Pet Shop Boys and how they got started? Uh, and then Neil Tennant worked for Star Hits Magazine. It was a writer. Was it Star Hits or was it NME? I thought it was Star Hits. I've heard both, so it was probably both because a lot of those guys back then freelance yeah that's true that's true i was thinking for some reason it was nme so yeah he was working as a writer and music critic you know i i guess they say all critics are frustrated artists that's you know kind of true i suppose and he decided he wanted to experiment a little bit with the synthesizer so he was shopping for a korg ms10 synthesizer (laughs) in a hi-fi shop on king's road in chelsea and he happened to meet uh, somebody else at the hi-fi shop that was as into synth music as he was, and that was Chris Lowe. So Chris Lowe was an architecture student at the University of Liverpool, and they quickly bonded over their love of bands like OMD. And uh, Chris dropped out of university 
so he and Neil could create the Pet Shop Boys. Seems like he made a right decision because they are still doing well to this very day. Yeah, but it was a huge risk, wasn't it? I mean, because, I mean, Chris had a little bit of music experience from, like, band in school, but neither of them were really musicians. You don't need that with the synthesizer. Well, that's true, but, I mean, it's still taking a huge risk, you know? I mean, this is really kind of consistent with the do-it-yourself punk ethos of the late 70s, right? And they formed in 81, so they're kind of coming off that. But... In 81, the attitude was, yeah, you don't you don't need to know how to play. You know, you just, uh-huh. just effing do it, right? Robert Smith of The Cure is famous for saying that. Like, you don't need to be some virtuoso to make good music. Yeah. So, yeah, and you know the story about how they, they chose the name, the Pet Shop Boys, right? I did, but it's, it, my mind just went blank on me. There were some guys in their circle of friends who worked at a pet shop, and whenever they would show up at a party... People would say, hey, the Pet Shop Boys are here. And Neil and Chris just thought, hey, that sounds really cool. There's a hey, Joe, question about Chris Lowe. Okay. Is he gay like Neil? Well, you know, that's... It doesn't matter. Right, right, right. To our listeners. Well, you know, okay. So that this is actually, I think, worth discussing. So they really are iconic in the queer community and in the gay community. Oh, yeah, big and- time. Neil Tennant came out, lead, Neil Tennant is the, the lead singer. He came out in maybe 94, because he couldn't have been 84. But Chris Lowe is the other half of the Pet Shop Boys, right? He's very private. He's kind of like the teller to Neil Tennant's pen. You know what I mean? He's the an international man of mystery is what he is. I can't find a thing about yeah, the dude. He, he really plays things very close to the vest. He's very quiet. You know, he always wears big sunglasses, so his face is partially obscured. In the videos, he's just kind of standing there. He's not really doing anything. So he's really kind of curated this image, this, this mystery, right? There's been a lot of speculation that he may have been involved with I think it was one of their male producers at one point in time but you know he's never confirmed or denied it he's just uh you know lets people think what they want to think so i admire that you know just let people draw their own conclusions so i i don't know i mean we can infer that he probably is but who can tell you know only he knows i like his no image just like I said, international band of mystery allure he has going for himself. That's he can probably go to the grocery store and not be bothered. Unlike Neil Tennant, <laughs> because Neil exactly. Neil really does kind of stand out. Yeah, that's it. Neil was an American now, doesn't he? Does he? I didn't know that. Wouldn't surprise me though. A lot of British musicians end up living over here. You know, John Taylor. Well, shall we talk about or shall we listen to? Let's these? go. Okay. So, you know, something else we're talking about, too, here, Trey, is a lot of these songs were originally recorded with a producer named Bobby Orlando. Yep. And even before they had recorded the album, they had released a few singles that were mixed and produced by Bobby Orlando. But when they got into the studio to record Please, they actually decided to bring in another producer, and uh, that would be Stephen Hayes. Yes. And they actually re-recorded a number of their singles 
with Stephen Haig, and ultimately they ended up being a lot more successful with this producer. Stephen Haig, as you guys have been worked with Dean Water extensively and also produced things for Susie and the Banshees and a multitude of other bands. I also was going to say, you know, when Stephen Haig first got with the band, they didn't really have any gear of note. Other than that chord synthesizer, huh? Right. So Steve had to outfit him with some, some professional gear, which best I can tell was a Yamaha DX7. How many times does that thing come up on this show? You are like Rain Man with these uh, synthesizers that you can rattle that off. That's amazing. I don't know how you do it. You know, some people are like... I, just, I read about them. I've actually got it. I've got a DX7 emulator on my computer that I fool with all the time. Oh, so, so when can we expect your album? I don't know. He's not denying it, folks. He's not denying it. I actually it. just brought a little Vinny set, so, so I can play the, you know, instead of having to use my computer keyboard. Oh, that's... That's cool, though. You know, but you know how some people are like they can hear a car engine and they can recognize it. That's how you are with synths, and that never ceases to amaze mm-hmm. me. Wow. The other keyboard was an Emu Systems emulator, too. You know the synthesizer you saw in uh, Ferris Bueller? Yes. With the floppy disk drive? Yes, where he's making the barf sounds. That's an Emu, too. That was an early sampler. Okay. Well, that's cool. So, but anyway, Stephen got on some professional gear and said, you know, you guys need to use this stuff. Sounds like a Roland 808 drum machine, but probably a Yamaha RX-5 in there, too. That's amazing to me. That, that blows my mind. Right. I, I just got, because I don't have that ability. That's so cool. The kick drum is definitely off an 808. It's so deep. But that snare sounds like an RX-5. But I almost have to be. I'd bet a paycheck on it. Okay, and then for me, <laughs> right over my head. So you can just tell. Okay, you, you can just tell, not me, <laughs> not me. Also, you know, I should say the DX7, as I've said before, was the most common synthesizer of 1986. I mean, do, do, there's not a probably not an album about that here that that happened that is out somewhere. Okay. Seriously, I mean, they were thousands of them, but I. Let's, you want to go into track one and uh, enough with the you are, synth you, gear talk? Yes, one second, because there's one other thing I want to point out. Have you noticed, Trey, that every Pet Shop Boys album has a one-word title? Uh-huh. Oh, you did? Indeed, I have. Oh, see, now I... Who hadn't noticed? Okay, I hadn't... Who hadn't noticed that? I hadn't until I was going through in my MP3 player looking at it. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, every single one. Supposedly, they named this album Please because Neil Tennant thought it would be funny to have people go into the record store and say, I'd like the Pet Shop Boys, please. Yep. Yep. Okay, so start us off. What's our first track? Okay, we have two divided by zero, which I personally feel is the best track on the album. Well, all right, well, let's listen to it and then let's talk about it. Divided by zero, zero, two. Let's not go home. We'll catch the late train. I've got enough money to pay on the way. When the postman calls, 
So talk to me, Trey. Why is this the best track on the album? It's almost like they were showcasing those two previously mentioned synthesizers because I can fit them both out. Other people can. I know you think I'm crazy, but there's a million other people out there going, that's the Evo, that's the DX, that's the 808 key drum right there coming in. I mean, it's, it's all obvious. The strings are the Evo. Okay. The rest of it is the DX7. Okay. So if you, you get a feel for where I'm at there, you and I really are coming at this from opposite ends of the spectrum. I think that's fantastic because <laughs> there's, like I said, no way that I would know that. The only thing that I know on this track is the sound effect, the two divided by zero. There was a rumor going around that that was a speaking spell. And I you don't know if you had one in the that I did. But actually, Neil Tennant has said that it wasn't. Uh, it was his father's Sharp EL640 talking calculator. Dang, I can believe that. Mm -hmm. That they wouldn't be the first band in history to use something weird like that on now, especially with the advent of samplers right here. Yes, yes. This is when all that was taken off. Yes. So, as far as the subject matter of the song, I mean, this is a really strong first track, and it's also really kind of dark. You know, when I was a teen listening to this i kind of thought oh wow you know let's not go home let's run away you know i thought oh maybe this is about like just you know two kids that have just had it and just want to run off together of course then as i get older and i listen to it now you know someone heard a rumor someone tipped them off so then that's got me thinking well maybe they were involved in some kind of crime and I, I, there was even a rumor for a while that this song was about an unplanned pregnancy where, you know, a teen finds that, you know, they're unexpectedly pregnant and so the two are running away. Now, that would surprise me if that was actually true because all of the songs on this album, and for that matter, most Pet Shop Boys songs, are very ambiguous in that they could be about heterosexual relationships, homosexual relationships... Uh, you, you know, you, you can't really tell. And so something like that, where it's specifically about a pregnancy, which would by nature be a heterosexual relationship, it seems a little out of character for them. I think they were cleverly trying to hide their sexuality, which, you know, I don't want any of our listeners to take this the wrong way, but for that period in time, it was probably the last thing to do. Well, and, and they wouldn't be the only ones to do that, right? George Michael? Right. right. Elton yep. John. You know, I'm still remembering the I'm Still Standing video where. Oh, yeah. You know. And it certainly wouldn't have bothered me. Uh, yeah, I could have cared less. It, it was a different time. You know, we had uh, mm -hmm. the Reagan Republicans and the quote unquote moral majority and everything. And yeah. I'm really glad that we have moved past that where people no longer feel the need to hide that. Mm -hmm. For sure. So now back to that DX7. Yes, yes. Tell me I'm more. Just kidding. I'm Tell just me kidding. more. 
We'll get into that more on the West End Girls. Okay, well, that is the next track. So should we listen to West End Girls? Let's check it out. That was the first single off the album, and it was released on October 28, 1985. But this was actually the second iteration of the single. They had released a single previously in uh, April of 84, and that was produced by Bobby Orlando, as I'd mentioned earlier. And that was released on Columbia Records, Bobcat Records imprint, and it was a big hit in the clubs. But it was a little bit different than this version. So... Apparently, it really took off in Chicago. Oh, it really did. Yes. Yeah. Especially uh, Chicago house music scene, right? Dancing. Mm-hmm. Yes. It really, really was big here. I, I personally, I don't care for that first version of the song. It just doesn't have the same dark tone that the, you know, the version we're, we're talking about has. I agree. I agree. It's not quite as smooth and polished and a little bit menacing. Yeah. Yeah, that bass line. That sound that sound that sound is real familiar, right? Which one? The bass? Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Uh-huh. Dun, dun, dun. That's the DX seven bass turn. That also appeared on two other hits okay. of nineteen eighty six. What were they? Take My Breath Away by Berlin. Okay. Which is totally a DX seven. Okay. And uh Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. As a matter of fact, the entire uh, Top Gun soundtrack is a DX7. I believe it. Almost single-handedly. <laughs> Shut up, Jerry. <laughs> well, because I know you're going to talk about synths more on the other songs, too. So, you know, you mentioned mm-hmm. that this song has a very dark kind of tone to it. So, oh, yeah. Neil Tennant started to write the song after watching an old Jimmy Cagney gangster film. Yep. And, I tried to find what one, and I couldn't. You know, I, I'd be hard-pressed to kind of know the difference between one and the other. But um, supposedly one night as as Neil was drifting off to sleep, and I've had stuff like this happen to me too, when you're kind of in that weird space kind of between sleep and awake, do you find that you get Mm -hmm. like really kind of wild creative ideas popping into your head? Yeah, that DX7 really just starts calling me to my computer. No kidding. (laughs) Yes, I do all the time. You're obsessed. You're obsessed. A lot of the stuff. You know, a lot of those things I write on the internet, I, you know, about these, some of my elongated posts I do, I was about to fall asleep and was like, gotcha. wait, and got up and did it. Gotcha. Well, anyway, so as he was drifting off into sleep, that line came into his head. Sometimes you're better off dead. There's a gun in your hand and it's pointing at your head. And oh my God, you want to talk about one of the best opening lines of a song of all time. And I would say this is it. Yeah, this is one of those songs 
I was like, I have no idea what the hell they're thinking about. This is great. And the two are not mutually exclusive, right? Right. Um, it really kind of is almost a, a wrap. The way that Neil Tennant yeah, is yeah, delivering you the know, lines. It is. Yes. So the lyrics were inspired by T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, uh, specifically the different narrative voices and mysterious references. And when I say different narrative voices, apparently he used a different microphone for the the sung choruses as for the, the verses to even give it like a slightly different sound. The lyric from Lake Geneva to the Finland station, I only recently learned, refers to the train route taken by Vladimir Lenin when he was being smuggled by the Germans to Russia during World War I. I would have never guessed that in a million years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the legendary Helena Springs on backing vocals. She'll appear later on in this album as well. One other thing worth noting here, and I'm sorry if I'm dominating the space, so I'll step back and let you talk. Oh, in you're a all right. Okay. Oh, Trey, are you a fan of Flight of the Concords at all? Not really. Oh. And just don't grab me. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they're bad. They just have, you know. Okay. I know there's some extremely talented people, you know, so don't. All right. So, Trey, uh, uh, Professor Laurie is going to give you a little bit of homework here. I want you to look up the Flight of the Concords video for Inner City Pressure. And it was very, very heavily inspired. I don't want to use the word parody because it's not quite a parody, more of a, an homage or a tribute, but very, right. very heavily inspired by West End Girls. So um, Ooh, you, you need I'll have to check that yes, out. And, and you'll see the similarities not only in the music, but in the video. It's it, it's a worthy tribute, I believe. So you need to check that out. I will. We'll do that as soon as we get done tape. Okay. So anything else about West End Girls that you'd like to note? I think that about covers it for that one. Okay. This version that we just heard, by the way, did reach number one on the Billboard charts on May 10th, 1986. Yes. How about that? Their first American release yeah. went to number one. That means they just tapped into something that was just right for that time, right? What, what's next after West End Girls? We have Opportunities, Let's Make Lots I could never get that out. Opportunities, Let's Make Lots of Money. Tongue twister there. Which came into, you know, got back in popular culture three years ago, right as the pandemic started. Yeah, because it was used in a commercial. Mm -hmm. What was the commercial for? I forget. I don't remember which one. I could probably look it up here. 
But go ahead while I'm looking it up. I'm not really a TV watcher, but my offender's girlfriend showed up one day singing it during the pandemic. And I'm like, been listening to the pet shop. Well, she's like, no, it's I live with TV. And that. I'm like, really? Yeah, right. <laughs> all state insurance. That The commercial was all state. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yes. You know, it's funny, Trey. Our, our listeners can't see this. You are wearing a Nightmare on Elm Street shirt. Indeed, I am. And when this song came out, I had a very good friend named Kim, and she laughed every time she heard this song because apparently there's a, a line in one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films where uh, Freddy Krueger like says something to one of his victims like, uh, um, you've got the body, I've got the brains, or something like that. Does that ring any bells to you? Because I, I have not... Must be in the second one. Okay. I don't know. Because I, oh, I have not seen any of those movies, believe it or not. Wow. The no. first one's excellent. Not what you think it is. Okay. I don't want to talk too much. I got a lot for opportunities, but I want you to go first. Uh, you know, this one, even in 86, like we just said, it being all over the place three years ago in summer of 86, this one was just as popular as West End Girls was all over the place. You know, oddly, I didn't remember the video. Well, there were actually two different videos for this one. I was going to say, wasn't there two or three videos for this one? Yeah, there were two different ones. The one I remember had a lot of, like, kind of, I don't want to say animation. It was very stylized, very 80s, where you kind of had the images on a cutout background, you know, like the, the like Neil and, and Chris and stuff. Yeah, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it justice. <laughs> a lot of great synthesizer work on this one too, including that sampled snare drum. Which I have no idea where they got that from, but it's great. It sounds like somebody hit a metal trash can, which it may very well be. Very distinctive sound. Yeah, it's yeah. unmistakable when you hear that opening beat. You know what song it is. Mm -hmm. So this one went to number ten in the U.S was actually the third single they released off of this album. It was released as a single on May 19th, 1986. One thing that's interesting is, you know, because the Pet Shop Boys are British, this is the one single of theirs that charted higher in the U.S. than in the U.K. Interesting. Yeah. So this is actually the third iteration of the song. So the, uh -huh. the first version was recorded with Bobby Orlando, and that one actually was never released. The second version was recorded with J.J., I'm going to slaughter this last name, Jashalik from Art of Noise, and Nicholas Froome. And that one was released prior to the album, but it didn't do so well. So coming off the success of West End Girls with Stephen Haig, they brought him in and had him produce this single as well. And uh, the result, I think, was obviously very successful. And the single remix to this was just outstanding. For those of you that don't know, the, the version, the radio version, is very, it, well, well, I wouldn't say radically different, but it's very different than the LP version. I always thought that this song was about, like, a super genius kind of schemer, right? You can tell I'm educated. I studied at the Sorbonne, doctored in mathematics, right? Mm -hmm. I always took it to mean that. I, I very recently read an interview with Neil Tennant where he actually says that it's about two losers. It's all puffery, right? They're, they're, they're all talk and, and that it's not actually 
doesn't actually come to anything. I always thought it was about a bragger. Yeah, so that that I read that in the other day too about what you said about somebody blowing themselves up. So yeah, so your interpretation is probably more accurate than mine. But you know, I think that's one of the cool things about the lyrics on all the songs on this album is there's so much that you can interpret. You know, there's so much that you could bring to it. I also kind of felt like they were making fun of American society in some ways with this one too. Just the whole yuppie image of 86 and the, you know, cocaine and Wall Street. Greed is good. Pretty much what it was. Yeah. Gordon Gecko. Yes, yes. Was that 86? What year was that? As 86 to 87, all right there. Well, actually, 85 to 87 was where that whole yuppie thing really got wound up. Yep. Alex Keaton on Family Ties. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the wonderful Reagan years. Yes. Her voice dripping with sarcasm. I just felt like they were really making fun of that with this song, that whole oh, I th- thing now. I guess you had to, had to be there for that one. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think it is total satire. Okay, so then the next track, Trey, was actually the second single. So it kind of sandwiched between West End Girls and Opportunities. And that was Love Comes Quickly. I really liked this one. The video was cool, too. was the second single from the album it was released february 24th 1986 didn't do quite as well as their first single west end girls and only reached number 62 in the usa it doesn't seem like this one got as much airplay as west end girls at all no i think you're right i wonder why that might be i mean it's a good song it's actually trey the first song that neil and chris ever wrote together really yes so if you look at the credits, it's it's Neil and Chris and Stephen Haig. And I guess Stephen Haig gets a co-writing credit for the first two chords in the middle section of the song. That's what a producer does. But see, that's where the money is, though, in the writing. So the fact that he's got that writing credit, you know. Do you recognize the saxophone at the end? It's, uh, what? Roxy Music. Yes, Andy McKay. Andy McKay. There you go. Yes. I knew that. Yes. Was there one of those featuring stickers on the single? Oh, I don't know. I never saw Member the single. Remember Roxy yeah. Music or something like that? They were they were playing that back then. Oh, see, now, I never saw that single. I The only ones I remember were West End Girls and Opportunities. I don't even remember this single. God, see, I was I was in our Camelot music every weekend back then, just pouring through everything. You know, I, I was that guy. Yeah. 
Well, whereas me, I was just glued to MTV. You know, that's how I... Well, I mean, at this point in time, I was that too, but I was in there every weekend. You know, I had my list of stuff I wanted to get, so I was I was bad about it. Well, see, you... I was all over. You were, you were one of the big kids. You got to, like, drive and stuff, right? Well, I had a boat bed. <laughs> all right. Is there anything else about Love Comes Quickly that you'd like to say? I think that about covers it with that one. It, you know, it's a really good underrated song. You know, especially the beginning, the kind of breathy, sooner or later, this happens to everyone. And wham, what a what a lead in there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what's next? Up next, we have Suburbia, which is another one I really, really like. Yeah, this is a great one. So this was the fourth single from the album. Yes. I love the changes in the songs. It goes from dark to upbeat, happy, poppy, and then back again all throughout the song. Yeah, that kind of juxtaposition, right? Between the yes. the dark realities of, of growing up in suburbia with the crime and everything. And then, you know, let's take a ride. Mm-hmm. You know what it's based on, don't you? Based out of film. The infamous pop rock film Suburbia. Don't tell me you've never seen that either. We're going to have to do a spinoff show called Accelerated Culture. Trey shows Lori the you know the hits of the eighties. I can't wow, that's a I just, classic. I just can't picture you kind of setting me up like Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange with my eyes forced open. You know, making me what, watch what, I mean, all these movies. How are you into alternative music in the eighties? Because see suburbia. Because suburbia in eighty three, I would have been nine years old, and I would not have been allowed to. Well, watch hell, it. I didn't see it till probably eighty seven. But still, I mean, it you know, it wasn't. It's not like it was a blockbuster hit. It was everywhere, somewhere in there. It might have been eighty six. All right, hold on a sec. I want to see if it's streaming anywhere. All right, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. Prime Video, it's free. Okay. Maybe maybe that'll be what I do to, tonight. You know, you know what? It's a terrible movie, but it's 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 a pop rock movie. You have to me. see it. Now he tells me it's a terrible movie. Okay. I never said it was good. It's just a seminal... Hey, why do you want me to watch a movie if it's terrible? Because you were the whole 80s alternative music thing. It's when you, like Sid and Nancy. You just you have to be able to say you've seen it. Okay. Well, you know. Sid and Nancy at least has Gary Oldman. Okay, so Suburbia, yes, you're right. It was inspired by that 1983 film and by the Brixton riots of 81 and 85. 
And it was the fourth single from the album, released on September 22nd, 1986. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. Yeah, it's a great song. It really kind of spoke to me as a kid growing up in suburbia. Now, granted, I never did some of the things that they talked about in the song, but, you know, mother says he's too old for toys, you know, and being kind of in that awkward in-between stage where you're too old for toys and play dates, but you're not old enough to get into the bars and the clubs, so what are you going to do? It's playing on a character from the movie. Okay. As a young boy in the movie, that's sort of at odds with his age. Okay. And I only wanted something else to do but hang around. Right? Wow, you can really sing. I had no idea you could sing like that. Oh, I'm uh, I'm the karaoke queen. I knew you wanted to. I knew that. I just, I never heard you do it. That was a little bit off tempo, but um, actually, believe it or not, I do a couple Pet Shop Boys songs at karaoke. Opportunities is one of the ones I do at karaoke. Yeah, all the samples in the song were just great. Yeah, there's like kind of almost like a video game kind of sound to it at some point. The, the emulator, too, you could buy discs, just floppy discs of sounds, and that's probably what they got the of Ooh, the dogs barking, breaking glass, you know. And it all paints a picture, mm-hmm. right? It was a great song. It had a fun video, too. You don't remember seeing the video. I'll have to look that one up as yeah, well. Yeah, it was another one that was everywhere. You know, I quickly discovered after we first got MTV at the tail end of 85 that if you watched it late at night, you were just going to see off-the-wall stuff. Yeah, so the I stuff used... that they couldn't show during uh, well, yeah, Not necessarily daylight. that. You could just see, you know, old, old videos, lesser hits, things of that nature. So I would tape it overnight a lot of times, you know, school and play it look through and go, that looks interesting, and stop it, you know. And then we had this little gem that actually wasn't listed. Right, yeah, it wasn't listed on, yeah, back in the day. Yes. So this is actually a reprise of Opportunities. The first time I heard it, I thought it was going to be one of those bonus remixes like they used to throw in on albums, you know, kind of like on the Scritty Politi album. Right, right. Well, you know, this was actually part of the middle section of opportunities that they edited out. Mm-hmm. So they just decided to throw it in here, just as kind of fill and, in. I, okay, what's next? I think we should. Well, we we start off with tonight is Sprabbit.
And I just want to say here, in the past week of re-listening to this album, the second half of this album was just nowhere as good as the first half of the album. And you agreed with me too, didn't you, Lori? Yeah, I did. Well, you know, Trey, you were the first person that really pointed out to me, I just, I guess I'd never noticed it before, that especially at this time, artists would kind of front load the albums with all their best songs. Oh, yeah. Right. And I, I guess that was because, you know, when they were shopping it around to like the, the radio stations, they knew that they would only listen to like the first two or three tracks. Oh, right. For sure. So they put their strongest tracks there. Now, that being said, I actually think that Tonight is Forever is a really strong song. This one's actually pretty okay. Yeah. From those very first instrumental notes at the beginning, which unfortunately I had to cut out so we didn't go over with our sound clip. I tend to think, tend to be a very visual person. So as I'm listening to this entire album... I'm almost kind of in my mind coming up with like a narrative or like a movie. And there were some things in this one in particular from those beginning notes. I I don't know how to explain what I was envisioning without going through the entire thing. And you guys will all think I'm completely nuts. But I just some really, really beautiful visuals that this would bring to mind. Now, according to Neil Tennant, this song is about the club called Heaven in London. That's what inspired this. The idea that you can make a brief transitory excitement fancying someone in a nightclub into your whole life. Yeah. Who hasn't done that? What's that? I said, who hasn't done that? Right. Well, I think especially around this time period in London, you know, you hear a lot about like the Blitz kids and all these different groups where these kids were essentially penniless some of them were like squatting in you know little rundown slums and stuff they didn't have any income but damn if they didn't come up with the best clothes and go out and club and that was their life and that that night you know um money short and time is tight don't even think about those bills don't pay the price we never will so you know, it, it it's not hard to kind of see how this song could be about that club culture. I think you definitely nailed it with that. Oh, thank you. I had my moments. So next up, we have a song called Violence. What did you think of this song? Well, I thought it was a little bit disappointing. This was actually the last track they wrote for the album. 
And according to Neil, the song deals with the Northern Ireland situation. And that just seems so bad place for the selfie to me. It does, doesn't it? Because everything else seems to be about, you know, like clubs and love and everything. And then, yeah, this is just kind of stuck there in the middle. I think you're right. Right. Yeah. So Neil Tennant has said at this time there were bombs in London. And he said the song is really about how violence is male. It's a male concept. He certainly has a point there. And uh, that that's Helena Springs again on backing vocals. I was reading a little bit about her. Uh, she did the backing vocals on West End Girls. I think she's best known for doing backing vocals for Bob Dylan. Really? So she's been around for a while. Yeah. Helena Springs. Sounds like a place, doesn't it? I've seen pictures of her before. Yeah? Wasn't she in that? Remember that baby that that Midler made? I've never... No. <laughs> no, I don't. We are really going to do that sad show. We're so very interesting. Movies and concert films from the 80s. You know, the only Bette Midler movie that I ever really cared about was... Uh, what was it? Ruthless People? Wasn't she in that? Listen, it's a Bette Midler concert film. Oh, forget it. But it was more, hold on, hold on, hold on. Was it Divine Miss M? I think so, yes. But it was when she was a little more avant-garde before she became, you know, ridiculous love songs. Yeah, no, I'll pass. I'll put it to you this way. Nightflight used to run it, so that should tell you how bizarre it is. But that singer's in that movie. Okay. All right, what's next, Trey? Next up we have I Wanna Love Her. Again, like we were saying, you know, this is definitely a singles driven out. Mm hmm You know, they went into the studio with those five songs and Yeah. You know, back then they would build an album rather. They should have just put out an E P or something, I feel like. Yeah, I, 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 I get what you're saying. Again, you know, I I don't really care for this song a whole heck of a lot, but I think it's good that they experimented with different things and put this out. You know, even if it isn't as good as some of their other stuff. I mean, they can't all be West End girls, you know? This one just sounds a little too poppy in juxtaposition to the rest of the album. Which it is a pop album, but it's a darker, it has such a darker tone to it. And it just, this song's like, hey, it almost sounds like not a whole lot of effort was put into it. Well, interestingly enough, they wrote this song back in 1983. So this is one of their older songs. And according to Neil. Oh, weird. According to Neil, it's a gay disco song. He says it's about standing at a... Well, I can... That name, not the, the gay part, disco song. I'm sorry. 
That's okay. He says it's about standing at a corner of a nightclub and everybody's leaving and you've seen someone you fancy and who's going to make the first approach. Oh, there you go. Okay, so I was I was reading in the Pet Shop Boys wiki. I'm going to read this exactly what it says. The trombone on this was played by Chris under duress. I, 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 I'm sorry, that just brings to mind a funny mental Yeah, that's picture. hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then next up, we have another song called Later Tonight. You wait till later Till later tonight You wait till later Till later Till later tonight That boy Never cast a look In your direction Never tried to What's your thoughts on this one? Well, you know, this has got me kind of second-guessing what I said earlier, where I said I thought that Neil Tennant worked for NME, and you said Smash Hits. Well, it says Smash Hits on his wiki page. No, you are right, and I was wrong. Like we said, these people did a lot of freelance work, too, so he probably had stuff in there. Well, so the story behind this song is that Neil was at Smash Hits and looking out a window... And he saw a cute mod boy walking down the street. <laughs> and so he, he called this the most gay song we've ever written, practically, and no one noticed at the time. I wonder if we're working at Smash Hits back down the site. From what I understand, he didn't care for it too much. But anyway. Some other famous musician worked there too, didn't they? I, I, I could be wrong. Nick Kershaw. That's it. That's right. I knew somebody else was in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have so much in there. Sometimes it just, you know, it's. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to access your filing system to bring it out. I got gotcha. you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. What's the last track of the song then? Because we got one more left. Last track of the song. That doesn't make sense. I think we got one more track left, don't we? Indeed we do. And it's Why Don't We Live Together. Which, you know, this kind of sums up the mid-80s, too, because that's when people were sort of starting to get away from traditional marriage, marriage and family life and all that, kind of, you know, uh-huh. doing things like this. So, again, with Neil Tennant talking about what this song was about, 
He said, the song is really about settling down, compromise. If you will never find someone who you are totally in love with, who you are intellectually compatible with, physically compatible with, never going to get bored with sexually is incredibly good looking. If you're not going to find that person, you're probably going to settle for the person whom you're used to. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense, actually. Yeah. Arguably, those last four tracks, I think, are kind of weak. Oh, totally. I, I, I Like I was telling you, I'm not behind the scenes. I struggled to get through the second half of this album over the yeah. past two days. I, oh, yeah. You've been blowing up my phone. Who? Yeah, you. You've been blowing up my, my phone with messages saying, I can't get through the second half of the oh, album. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I just Can't we just do the singles, Lori? Yeah. And I'm like, no. You will get the whole thing and you will like it. How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? <laughs> there you go. It, it was a struggle. It's so, so diversely different than the first half of the record. Yeah. Well, so, you know, for their first album, they're still finding their footing. They're still finding their sound. They hit it out of the park. Oh, they totally with, did. I mean, they... With several tracks on this album, mm-hmm. but especially with West End Girls. And then you can kind of see then over time how they've refined their sound, how, you know, I mean, even in some of these other songs, like, you know, I, I Want a Lover Later Tonight, we're kind of seeing some of the songwriting themes that will emerge again in their later albums. And they really just kind of, I think they improve the craft. I think they improve the musicianship. The lyrics are definitely there. I, I would argue that, Lyrics have always been very strong for them. Oh, mm-hmm. He's a Daxville writer for sure. This is not a bad out. No, not at like all. Like you just said, it's a, it's an amazing first LP. Yes. I think the thing that helped them was they really started catering to their base. And who's that? Which was the, the gay audience. And that really, that's when they, you know, really found their place in the world. I think maybe I, I would hesitate to agree with that just because I think there is so much overlap between gay culture and club culture. Oh, for sure. I think that that's great that they have embraced that culture and that part of themselves, but I think it's broader than that. I think it's broader than just saying they're, you know, embracing the gay audience. And I think a lot of people really underestimate the Pet Shop Boys because they do tend to pigeonhole them as a gay duo. You know, like other bands of the time, like Erasure is another one that gets kind of pigeonholed and soft sell, right? Erasure wasn't odd. They were out there in your face from day one. Right, whereas eventually eventually the Pet Shop Boys did kind of evolve that. Right. Some of Neil Tennant's stage attire... Some of his, you know, like crazy headdresses and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Kind of channeling his inner Elton John, I think. And I love him for it. I think it's fantastic. Well, I mean, I I was well aware of the fact by 1991, at least Neil was gay. So once I got out in the world more and started working and beat more people and, you know, people, that, you know, I, I met some gay people and they were telling me that these guys are gay. And I was like, you know, I can see that. And you know what? I say good for them. I say good for them right. for embracing embracing that exactly. part of themselves. And you know what? For striking out and taking chances, not just as far as that is concerned, but also musically. And we talked about that at the very beginning of this episode, how they really took a chance 
you know, quitting their job, quitting university and uh, striking out and, and trying to become a synth pop duo when there were no guarantees of success. And they just, I think, happened to be at the right place at the right time. But also they had that right combination, I think, of lyrics and synth and, and, and melody that mm-hmm. just w- was just perfect for that time. I think we have Stephen Hank to thank too there for well, yeah, you know, getting them access to some professional gear, probably teaching them how to use it. What guys, you know? Yeah. All right, so that brings us to an end of another episode, Trey. It sure does. Yeah. So thank you for uh, going over this album with me because I know I really pushed for this one. I know I think you maybe were a little bit more hesitant at first. But I don't I think know. I like. You know, I've liked the album, but it's just been so long that I'd listened to it when I finally revisited it. It's one I noticed we were saying about the second half. Yeah, but I think so, this really was a pivotal, pivotal moment in music in 86. Oh, yeah, for sure. As is the album we're going to talk about in two weeks. Which album is that, Lori? Well, that is So by Peter Gabriel. It was just another, yeah, monumental album. Monumental is an understatement, yeah. Everybody had this one. Yeah. Everybody. And most of us still do. I don't know how many copies of it. Well, we'll we'll get into that in the show. Yes. He's probably sold 600 million copies at a star of day. <laughs> well, we can we probably, look- go to, probably go to Walmart right now and buy a copy of it. But it's still selling as a Yeah. Well, I don't yeah. know because all the Walmarts in Chicago just closed. Oh, Yeah. All four of them. I saw them Yeah. But anyway, that's all I got. How about you? That's all I got, too. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Come back in two weeks for Peter Gabriel. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>